Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome on this lovely Sydney evening to the University of Sydney and to this Sydney Ideas panel on the past and future of international thinking. My name is Professor Glenda Sluger. I'm the Director of the Laureate Research Program in International History here at the University. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands the University is built and welcome you to the latest in our public panels on crucial questions in the contemporary world. So at the research program that I direct in international history, our aim is to use the past to contribute to our understanding of the present and to help us think through the future of international order. At the heart of that idea of international order is foreign policy and diplomacy. And I like to think that when we acknowledge and pay our respects to the Aboriginal custodianship of country, that we are involved in a form of diplomacy. Acknowledgement of country is also a recognition of a kind of a kind of thinking that takes us beyond the idea that the nation is about one uh, group of people or identity or that national politics are purely domestic. We have been incessantly reminded in the last year, I think, of just how important the international diplomacy, foreign policy is to domestic or national interests or concerns. And uh, in a recent speech, actually last week, that uh, was delivered here at Sydney by the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator Penny Wong, and Penny Wong spoke to the need for thinking about how to maintain what she uh, kept referring to as a rules-based order in the international system and in the face of what she terms a, a disrupted world. And that's a kind of calm way of describing what's going on, I think, a disrupted world. Over the next few years, uh, the research program here at Sydney uh, we'll be collaborating with the nation's best researchers in law and international relations, uh, who are here tonight, to examine how deep knowledge about the past and present can help us think through the future of the world order. Not only who our trading partners and security allies should be, but marking out the horizon of national and international expectations that might help steady Australia's place in that disrupted world. So tonight is part of a week-long interrogation of international history and international thinking. Not all of you will be there. You're lucky that you don't have to come every day this week. <laughs> um, and we'll be looking into many of these themes and the study of diplomacy and international politics and institutions. And uh, the reason why we're spending a week on it is because there is a lot of work going on in that international history space. And people have travelled far and wide. And many of you are in the audience. Thank you very much for coming from... Uh, wherever you have travelled from. And for many of you, I know it's your first time in a long-haul flight. Welcome to the journey. Um, and you might be wondering, you know, is it worth it? Do we need to be thinking about the international? Why should we care about the past and future of international thinking? Well, references to the rules-based order we might be losing are everywhere today on the assumption that our anxiety is about a loss of a present that came out of the Second World War, in which the United States was a central sort of hegemonic figure. And of course, even though they're rarely mentioned, that in that order there were international organisations or are, such as the UN and IMF, as well as the idea of human rights. But I get anxious, I think, because I think there's more at stake than um, 
even just those things. As an historian of the modern era, I know that what we are losing is not just an abstract idea of rules-based order or even US leadership or even international organisations. It's a more fundamental idea of multilateralism that seems to me is at stake. That is the idea that states can negotiate with a group of like-minded other states or that states can agree that there are values above and beyond the interest of individual states. Uh, what an Australian IR theorist actually a couple of decades ago um, termed international society. Uh, his name was Hedley Bull. But the idea of um, multilateralism like the idea of international society that Hedley Bull coined take us back at least 200 years um, to uh, the end of the Napoleonic Wars, to the Congress of Vienna of 1814, and those are just the European stories. We could argue that they might take us back more recently to the 1970s and the new international economic order and the idea that what needed to be fixed was the inequitable relation between the first and third worlds. So there are very different kinds of ideas, I think, about international society, about rules-based orders and whose interests they're made and shaped in. So when I ask what is the past and future of international thinking, I'm thinking about both the idea that there is some kind of international community constituted out of state order and a much richer past of international thinking. And that's why tonight I really want to talk about the past and future of international thinking. I want to hear other people talking about it and have a conversation about it. I want to know what is the status of international thinking in the world today. So to help us pass these questions, I'm very glad I don't have to answer them, uh, we have with us tonight leading voices in the fields of international law, international politics and international history. I'll introduce the speakers now and then they'll come up one at a time and they have 10 minutes each to talk to you about international thinking and their own work, and then we'll have a conversation. The first speaker tonight is Professor Anne Orford, uh, the Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor and the Michael uh, D. Kirby Chair of International Law, and an Australian Laureate Fellow at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne, where she directs the Laureate Program in International Law. And Anne has, um, Professor Orford has a long list of prestigious publications. Her latest book, International Law and the Politics of History, is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. And uh, she recently published uh, a really interesting piece in the uh, London Review of Books blog, if you want to go and have a look. And she's now writing there more regularly, so I think it's a good place to go to catch up on uh, what you know, one of our greatest international legal thinkers is thinking. Professor Chris Rose-Smith, who is Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland and a Fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. And he has just published with Cambridge University Press on cultural diversity, international theory in a world of difference. And I have been meaning to tell you that I think that's a fantastic title. Professor Chris Rose-Smith is also one of um, uh, the important people working with us here thinking on the future of international order. And Professor David Armitage, who's come all the way from uh, Boston, with the Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History and former chair of the Department of History at Harvard University, where he teaches intellectual history and international history. His recent book on civil wars is uh, being translated into many, many languages and a bestseller, correct? And also uh, he's known for his um, essays on the foundations of international thought amongst many other books. And Professor Patricia Owens, who's come all the way from uh, the UK, who's Professor and Head of the Department of International Relations at the University of Sussex, after holding positions in London and Oxford, 
And uh, her most recent book is Economy of Force, Counterinsurgency, Counterinsurgency and the Historical Rise of the Social. Uh, but she's also published um, other um, really important studies on IR and uh, thinking about war and politics, including a fabulous book on the thought of Hannah Arendt. And she will also be speaking at Sydney University on Monday next week. And uh, she's also developing a new project on women in international thought that's very important and involves a number of us here at the university. So each speaker will speak for five to ten minutes and then we'll open up for conversations and your questions. So save them up, please, and a warm welcome to all our speakers. Well, many thanks, Glenda, for the uh, invitation to be here and the introduction. As Glenda has noted, I am a scholar of international law. So in a perfect world, uh, these opening 10 minutes I'd use to explain what international law is, what it does, why it helps us not only to think about the world we live in, but to solve problems such as the rise of xenophobic nationalism or authoritarian populism. But I guess if we agree on one thing here, it's probably that it's not a perfect world and things aren't quite that straightforward. So what international law is, what it does, how it frames what we understand about the world and how it shapes what we think we can do about that is really what my scholarship tries to comprehend. In other words, those deceptively straightforward propositions about the foundational object uh, in my field international law is, I think, what's at stake in much scholarship that touches upon international law today. So as this panel is part of a broader week-long conference on the theme of what is international history now, I wanted to try and focus particularly on how engagement with historical work is key to this task of grasping the nature and function of international law today and in doing so to make one caveat, which is this, that it's vital even for those outside the field of international law to um, understand that everyone who engages with the past of international law is caught up in this process of shaping what we take international law to be. So scholars historicizing something that they call international law are producing, rather than simply reproducing, a present object called international law through the narrating of that history. So how then is the past relevant to comprehending the present of international law? So in one sense, international law has always engaged with the past. So that's because international law is a form of knowledge, a discipline, a profession, a language game, an argumentative practice, and a set of institutions organized around interpreting past events, past incidents, past texts, past concepts, and past conduct. And it does that, that as part of a process of justifying present decisions or present actions that may affect the future as precedent or legislation. So the transmission across time of concepts, ideas, precedents, and interpretations is core to the work that we do as international lawyers. So all of us who are involved as teachers or as students or scholars of international law are involved routinely in engaging with material from the past. And legal education or legal training is in large part organised around teaching students 
how to manipulate the remnants of the past that have been transformed into legal concepts, legal fictions, or legal terms of art. And in addition, and as is the case with many other academic fields, international law is organised around invented traditions in which historical figures, events or texts are invoked to situate current developments in the field or in the world, to place them within a progressive or perhaps a regressive narrative and to provide a meaningful teleology for the work of the discipline. That work of narrating histories to define the tradition of international law is ongoing. And so, for instance, during the period of formal decolonization, we saw scholars turn to history to place newly independent states within that longer narrative. And here the work that David Armitage and Jennifer Pitts have done recently to recover for us the full or a fuller archive of the writings of C.H. Alexandrovitz is really vital to thinking that through. So international law in a sense is always, has always been and will continue to be engaged with the past. But I think we sent, entered a, a new phase, let's say a second phase for the purposes of a 10 minute overview uh, but a second phase, for argument's sake, of engagement with history during the 90s. So we often hear this described as the moment when international law took the turn to history. Or to put this in somewhat more dramatic terms, as uh, some of my colleagues have, this was the, the beginning of a battle for the soul of international law being played out on the field of history. So we all like a good battle, I think. The revolutionary character of this recent historically-minded work wasn't so much that it engaged with the past, but that it did this in a more self-consciously historical fashion and with the aim of engaging in a critical uh, rethinking of these progressive narratives for the field. And this ushered in a hugely dynamic period in which the study of materials from international law's past began to be undertaken not only by international lawyers, uh, engaged in more traditional scholarship, but also by international lawyers thinking critically, as well as scholars in legal history, world history, global history, imperial history, colonial history, the history of human rights, intellectual history, philosophy, international relations, post-colonial studies, and critical geography, and many key players are in this room. And scholarly interest in the question of whether and if so how the imperial past is relevant to the internationalist present grew dramatically, leading to rich and overlapping conversations about the histories of international law, international relations, empire, political economy, and international organisations. So I think we've now entered a third phase in which a sense of history and have, of time has re-entered the field somewhat more dramatically. The sense that liberal internationalism represented the end of history really dominated the field of international law for much of the past few decades and to a degree survived up until perhaps the last few years. While some critical scholars sought to unsettle this, much of the discipline, the profession and the field continued to be organised around ideas of progress or barriers to progress perhaps towards a rules-based international order. So international law may have been a discipline organised around other people's crises, but it itself wasn't in crisis. 
And in a sense, um, we entered that world that Scott Hamilton recently, quoting Foucault, has called a one of indefinite governmentality, a world of organised organized around sovereign states, in which we understood ourselves to be in a space of political temporality in which states and the state system had no foreseeable or predetermined end. So today I think a sense of time has re-entered that um, story, both through an external and an internal sense of rupture. The external sense results in part from the interrelated climate, refugee, financial, security and food crises of the past decade, which gave a new urgency to questions about the direction of projects of international law and order. And in a number of recent essays, Deepresh Chakrabarti has argued that with climate change in particular, we've found ourselves reinserted into history, wondering if, after all, the world as we know it might yet come to an end. Um, as Frederick Jamison said, it seems easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism or indeed the end of the state system. So perhaps then politics is not simply a field of endless return and repetition. An internal sense of rupture is also being caused by challenges to existing international law regimes and to international agreements and alliances. We could think of the familiar examples of Brexit and Trump's challenges to NATO, uh, to NAFTA, to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to the uh, agreement with Iran, but also numerous states now challenging or withdrawing from investment treaty regimes, the International Criminal Court and even the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. So in this new phase, engagement with historical work is vital to grasping the nature of international law and its historical and current role, to seeing how certain institutions, practices, concepts, distributions of resources and ideas about time have come to seem inevitable, normal and natural, to make those things seem strange to see what has to be undone, but also to see what should not be taken for granted. So to conclude, when we try to understand what international law is, what it means, what it does, who it represents, we are trying to make visible what is already visible, to try to understand what is unfolding in front of us, while at the same time knowing that there are great swathes of material that are hidden from public view despite the centrality of transparency and publicity to the ideals of the rule of law. And we do all of that knowing that international law is an open-ended and adversarial field in which everything is in motion, that what counts as a source of international law is in motion for whom and why, what counts as state practice for the purposes of determining custom, what counts as a treaty, what counts as a rule, what counts as an exception, who makes the law, who maintains its archives, whether the situation we're in is radically new or, or one to which existing precedents apply, are all in play. And it's in that field of argument that stories about the past of international law will take their place. Thanks. I wonder if you could say a bit more about, you know, um, that really interesting point you made about external rupture and the, that, that, this, that really it, the concern of international law in, in, in that context is 
of a threat to the state rather than the notion of a threat to a kind of an international order. It's the, what is at stake in the anxiety, part of the anxiety is about actually the status of the state in the context of you know, refugees and migration and, and the numerous kinds of challenges to um, state sovereignty that exist in the present. So I think um, a sense of um, a external rupture, there I'm trying to suggest that international lawyers themselves have been thrown into a sense of crisis about whether this system is as permanent as it once seemed, um, both by uh, challenges to international law specifically um, and challenges to international institutions, but then to broader challenges to planetary <laughs> politics, or so to the global in, in a different kind of sense. And there the challenges are perhaps in some ways more familiar to international lawyers. So in a way, international law would be a field that understands itself as capable of solving problems um, for good or ill. And uh, so then some new crises just give some more work to do. So on, on some level, that would have been something that you might expect to see refolded back into the story reasonably swiftly. So now we can turn food insecurity into a problem that we right. can solve and in doing so kind of take that into this ever-expanding jurisdiction. And I think the double move that's happening now that's reinserting a sense of history in a new way is um, a challenge to the idea that this really was the end of history in that kind of Hegelian sense. Mm -hmm. that we, we are in some kind of indefinite period where things will move around, but we kind of know where we are. And that, I think, has gone. So the conversations that I hear international lawyers having, including um, pract practicing international lawyers, working for, the, for governments or um, international organizations, are quite different to the conversations that we would have been having two or three years ago. And someone like me, who's a bit more um, wacky, so <laughs> who is much more now likely to be invited into conversations about strategy than might once have been the case. So it's as if um, there's really a sense that we don't know what's going on exactly. And um, so the piece I wrote for the LRB blog last week was called In the Hall of Mirrors, precisely because the, the feeling I had trying to make sense of what the heck was going on in Helsinki and subsequently was that we're all in that hall of mirrors. So it's as if no one quite knows what reflection to trust, um, with the things that are being made transparent, you're never sure whether you're being directed to the thing you should be looking at uh, and this um, kind of roiling sense of legal argumentation being brought in and out unexpectedly just adds to the sense of Crisis. Well, that's a good note to continue to the next person. So I think uh, this. All right. So let me also thank, uh, begin by thanking Glenda and the University of Sydney for inviting me here to speak. Um, I'm as part of this event. I've been at a gathering of international lawyers who've been considering the question of what is international law now. Next, I think it's gone to what was it before, 
and as an international relations scholar in that particular gathering, it's a little bit like, I think, to use a Melbourne metaphor, being like a, uh, a Collingwood supporter at a Hawthorne Gala ball. Um, but all I can say in that respect is that, is that I'm, I'm quite used to that um, because I'm an international relations scholar who plays around also with international law, with political theory, and in my most recent work, with anthropology and sociology. So international relations is often described somewhat pejoratively as a magpie discipline, and I'm the sort of magpie that's constantly swooping you in that respect. So I'm the magpie's magpie. But what I wanted to do, uh, to do now is to reflect a little bit on how I see the relationship between the field of international relations, which is my home base, and the study of history and the question of what international history might be. Now, for an international relations scholar who works on questions of international order, that's a crucial question because when our shadow minister speaks about worries about the future of the rules-based international order, which I have to tell you is a language that all uh, foreign ministers of Western democracies are using at the moment, fear for the permanence or durability of the rules-based international order, it's, we're meant to all understand exactly what is meant by that term. But not only are there conceptual questions regarding what a rules-based international order might be, but there are also profound historical questions that are attached to that. We can't begin to think about the future of the rules-based international order if we don't have some sense of the history of that order, where that order came from, what form it took, what social and political dynamics were responsible for its evolution over time, what crises has it experienced before, how resilient has it proven. All of those are questions that engage international relations, scholars who are interested in questions of order with history. So for me, I take this as imperative that international relations scholars engage history, but I also find it somewhat liberating because for those international relations scholars in this room, and I can see at least one, um, <laughs> two maybe, another on the podium, International relations scholars uh, have a record of profoundly bastardising history. Uh, in fact, the entire discipline has been built on a series of myths uh, and misreadings that have enabled us to sustain a set of theoretical propositions that are taken as axiomatic about international relations. Now, what I mean by liberating is that these failures are so patent that anybody who actually spends any time reading the work of historians, let alone engaging in things like ventures to archives, of which I have actually been, I should note, <laughs> that's an incredibly liberating experience because it enables you to innovate with the fundamental ideas in our field because those ideas turned out often to be based on very poor historical assumptions. But what I want to use my time now to talk about is I want to make 
three points with regard to any discussion of international history and particularly points that are, I think are important for any future engagement between international relations scholars and historians. And the first one point I want to make has to do with conceiving of the international itself. So in today's discussions, uh, there are often references among my historian colleagues about what they're doing in international, international history is the history of something called the international. But as the famous uh, French uh, historian, international relations scholar Raymond Aron said, international relations have no frontiers traced out in reality. They are not and cannot be materially separable from other social phenomena. Any engagement with the question of international history, therefore, any international history project thus rests on a prior conceptual move that defines the international as a particular social category. Now, what I want to argue is that any move forward from here in the study of the history of the international has to debate that conceptual move. And I've said in a lot of my work that the standard move, which is to see the international as that realm that consists of relations between sovereign states, will not do. Now, it's intuitively plausible that that's what should be sufficient. But the problem with that conception of the international, the international as relations between sovereign states, is that it can tell us nothing about the evolution of that social and political formation in the first place. So we are restricted to understanding a very discrete historical realm that cannot explain the history of the thing itself. Now that's partly a problem because a world organised into sovereign states is a product of the last 60 years. Prior to that, the world was organised into sovereign imperial complexes, a very different way of organising political life. Any international history, and this is, I think, the motivation behind imperial history, has to come to grips with the transitions, nature and transitions in that particular order. Now, there is a temptation in international relations at the moment to move immediately to global history. And there are many uh, commonalities between global history and many of the questions international relations scholars are interested in. But I think that's, for me, that's unsatisfying. I need something a little bit more robust at the core of the international history project than simply we're talking about the history of the globe or even political relations within the globe. For me, the core of our enterprise needs to be understanding the historical evolution and configuration and functioning of large-scale organisations of political authority. The system of sovereign states is just that. It is a systemic configuration of political authority. It's a way of distributing and organising political authority over a large scale. But historically, it's not the only way of doing that. Sovereign imperial complexes were another way of doing that. Heteronymous feudalism was another way of doing that. 
And if international history is to have any meaning for me, it should focus on the evolution of those ways of organising and distributing political authority, which can encompass the traditional focus on the sovereign state, but it can also be more than that, and it can also provide signals and cues to thinking about how the system of sovereign states may transform in the future. The second point I want to make has to do with questions and methods. One of the most pernicious tendencies in any discipline is for methods to dominate questions. I'll give you an example of a conversation when I was a professor in Florence and I went to a uh, PhD student's second year defence of their research. And I made a comment on a panel of three professors. And I made a comment to the student that perhaps they would benefit from a broader conception of power at which one of my colleagues, political science colleagues, leapt out of their chair and said, no, he wouldn't be able to measure it. But as the great uh, social theorist Stephen Luke said in his classic work on power, power is most important and most insidious when it is least visible. So questions need to come before methods. And I think that focusing on questions is, the, is crucial not only because it's the honest way of doing scholarship, but also because it actually is what opens up scope for interdisciplinary dialogue. So long as we're down in the sort of mud of methods, we can find all sorts of reasons for saying that we can't possibly cooperate with each other across disciplinary boundaries because we do things differently. If we focus on questions, then we can actually move to thinking about creative use of methods from different terrains that enable us to answer big and important questions. But also, and I want to say this, that's the terrain, if we're going to have arguments, that's the terrain I'd rather have it on. I'd rather have it over questions that we can agree are important and then we can debate different methodological approaches to those questions. Having our debates in the realm of methods of did you go to the archives or did you look at this, did you not do that, seems to me to get the horse before the cart. So an appeal for question-driven research in the dialogue between disciplines over international history. Finally, and if I haven't been provocative enough, let me just end on a question about identity. So I think, and I'm going to actually use the example of my own discipline here, too many of the disagreements within international relations and political science are disagreements that I think masquerade as intellectual disagreements but are actually about identity politics. They're actually about scholars defending who it is that they are as scholars and how they go about doing their work. I think this is immensely destructive. It's immensely destructive to debate within political science, but I think it's also very harmful for debate across disciplines. Right? This is not just important because I don't like those particular kinds of debates, but as, as Anne has referred to, this is a moment when there are really big questions to do with the international, to do with the future of the international order, to do with basic issues of peace, cooperation, security, whatever, human welfare. These are questions that can't be answered 
from within disciplinary silos. They require us to come together to answer those questions. And I think we have a lot more to offer working together than we have sitting in our silos. And that is to end on uh, speaking to, uh, to Glenda's original point. One of the things that Glenda alluded to was a, co a collaborative project that we're starting out between Melbourne and Sydney and the University of Queensland, between law and history and international relations around questions to do with the future of international order. And that's done in the spirit of the idea that we can't get at any of those questions unless we step out of those silos. And that's what I hope we're going to be able to do. And I'll leave it there. David. An historian who enormously values the conversations he has in person and over space and time with colleagues in international law and international relations and political theory. So a rather unusual historian, perhaps, but uh, one I hope very much in the spirit of the collaborative discussion we're having this evening. Uh, it should be the motto of historians, uh, or rather, historians should take as their motto, I should say, uh, an old joke from the Soviet Union. And the joke ran in the aphorism, the past is unpredictable. Just think about that for a moment. Uh, <laughs> the past is unpredictable for historians, not least because um, the way in which we see the past, the way in which, to take up uh, Chris's very important challenge, the way in which we frame our questions about the past necessarily changes according to our circumstances in the present. So I'm going to, uh, in these brief minutes, make a few uh, counter-cyclical comments related to our patently counter-cyclical moment. And my first counter-cyclical comment is one that's going to get me drummed out of the historical profession by my colleagues in history here, which is very briefly in about three sentences to defend presentism. If there is one thing that binds the historical profession together, it is an aversion to presentism. Uh, presentism, however, to most historians is like time to St. Augustine. If you ask, if you ask them uh, what it is, they'll tell you that they're against it, but if you ask them no, what is it really? They'll usually not be able to tell you. I recently, in a fit of madness uh, and obsessionality, uh, found 18 different definitions of presentism uh, among historians and others who use the term. I want to defend two forms of presentism. One is the form of presentism famously associated with uh, the Italian uh, historian and philosopher Benedetto Croce, who famously wrote in the usual English translation that all history is contemporary history, by which he meant that all the history that we write as historians is written in the present and for the present. And we should effectively admit that at every point, that uh, we are writing in the present, but also for the present. Uh, that we, uh, uh, I think is a very important form of presentism that we should be aware of, that current concerns, they may be the current concerns within a disciplinary community or scholarly conversation, uh, determine the questions that we ask, and indeed, in some ways, the answers that we find to them, but also that changing circumstances around us shape the questions uh, that we uh, decide are important as historians. I think of this also uh, in a rather less philosophical vein as the disco ball theory of history, uh, that as a disco ball turns in the light, uh, the, uh, the flashing of its light illuminates 
accommodates uh, different areas, different questions, different materials uh, for us as history turns. So that's one form of presentism, how uh, the present alerts us as historians to new questions and problems. A question like, for instance, what is this rules-based international order? What do we mean by that? What have others meant by that? How is a rules-based international order, in fact, uh, uh, liberated and facilitated a great deal of rule-breaking and unruliness on the part of those who uh, have most vociferously supported such a rules-based international order. So that's one form of presentism, how current circumstances will change our questions. Another form of presentism is what my colleague in history of science at Harvard, Naomi Oreskes, has recently called motivational presentism. That is, the current concerns that weigh upon us as individuals and as scholars uh, determine where we place our own individual individual energies. Uh, it might be for very specific reasons within our own academic careers or advancement, or it may be the urgency of the very present itself. And if we don't have an urgent present uh, at any point in our recent memories, uh, the moment that we have now, the moment that's been spoken of uh, by, by Anne and by Chris so far, this moment of the last two years, but also the, the years, the decades leading up to that, I think is something which motivates us very much to direct our scholarship in presentist channels to try to explain how have we got where we are today, where are we today? Even defining that uh, is an important historical um, Problem. At this moment, we might even say, we see the internationalism, the international thinking, which most of us, I imagine in this room, most of us scholars have taken as foundational to our intellectual lives and our personal commitments as um, globe-trotting cosmopolitans invested in the idea of uh, the fluidity of borders, the inevitable progress of human rights and the integration of institutions, the world getting better and better through globalization, while of course being critical uh, of the consequence of that, at least that assumption has been built into many of our research projects and indeed in our own lives. That's clearly on the defensive and perhaps to put it even more strongly is in many parts of the world increasingly in retreat. How do we, with a historicist mindset, come to understand where that defensiveness has come from? What are the forces being arrayed against it? Where have they emerged from? And how do we understand that? I'll, I'll suggest very briefly one way using history we might understand that, and Glenda's already alluded to this, uh, one way in which we can start to think about this is a move from multilateralism, the generation of international institutions through multilateral uh, uh, agreements and organizations, uh, to a shift back towards bilateralism. This is very clearly one of the very few clear ideas through the murk of uh, the rantings of the man whose, uh, the, the man whose name I will not uh, speak on, on this podium, is a shift from multilateralism back to, to bilateralism, which is the, the, the obverse, as it were, of his own particular form of nationalism, but it's also one that fits with the bilateralist nationalism of other major figures, like Putin, for instance. So I think one thing that came out of the Hall of Mirrors of Helsinki he was precisely that idea of individual states engaging through their own power politics in bilateral rather than multilateral activities, necessitating the tearing down wherever possible of any multilateral organizations uh, which get in the way of those bilateral um, activities. And, and uh, many historians would say and have said, this is a return to something like a 19th century power politics that we have to go back to the 19th century to begin to understand uh, uh, Another rules-based order, indeed, but one very different from the one that we have grown up in and become uh, very much uh, attached to. And it's also a reminder, just as a brief sidebar, 
that the nation is at the heart of both the international and the transnational. Uh, it's been hidden by the inter and the trans, uh, hidden around it, but the nation, meaning, of course, the state, is coming back out of that integument again at this moment. How might we study this? One way in which we might study this shift from multilateralism back to bilateralism, and this relates to ongoing work that I'm beginning now, is to look at a vast archive which has barely been touched by historians, and this will seem paradoxical uh, uh, when I mention it. That's the archive of treaties. One of the most traditional, perhaps even the most foundational of all forms of documentary substance for historians are collections of treaties uh, uh, beginning in the, in the 17th century. But that archive has massively expanded. And I'll just, I, I'm not the kind of historian who counts, but one thing I think that does count in this is just one brief statistic that one of the very first collections of treaties in the late 17th century had 224 treaties. The League of Nations uh, treaty uh, uh, collection from the interwar period has 4,000. The UN treaty database at last count had 250,000, and seven or eight treaties are being added every single day to the UN treaty database. So that explosion from 220-some in the late 17th century to more than a quarter of a million three, uh, in the early 21st century is a massive expansion of both multilateralism and bilateralism, but also for historians, it's an amazing playground, an amazing textual playground of documentary evidence uh, which can be analyzed, both for for its language and also for the suturing together of a rules-based international order. Those treaties are the ligaments of that rules-based international order. And just to sharpen that for a moment, uh, both Brexit and the crisis of uh, the orange asteroid in the United States and its impact upon the world can be summarized uh, synecdocally uh, by coming back to treaties. Brexit is um, a treaty negotiation. It's a treaty negotiation in reverse out of the treaties which brought the UK into the European Union and to create a new treaty, perhaps, if ever, between the UK and the EU. But it all comes down to Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. That's what the enormous, boiling, and ultimately probably utterly destructive crisis, self-destructive self crisis going on in the UK is about at the moment. It's about Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, Trump's assault on NATO is about Article 5 of the, uh, the, NATO, the foundational treaty of NATO. Uh, his uh, disruptive comments about would, would American troops go to fight for Montenegro is effectively saying that um, pact of mutual defense in Article 5 of the NATO treaty is something that we in the US would tear up. This comes down to that, uh, that treaty-based system, and we, I think, really need to understand how that was elaborated, what those materials are, what the implications of that are. And that's just a reminder, just to wrap things up, that the international of which we've spoken was originally a juridical category. The very word, like so many other words, was coined by Jeremy Bentham, uh, the English philosopher in the late 18th century. And he coined the term international to describe a form of law which he described as the mutual transactions of sovereigns as such. Interestingly, he didn't say sovereign states as such, though that's clearly what he meant. But we might think of this in broader terms of sovereigns as such, those sovereigns in the early modern period, and indeed into the, into the modern period, include corporations, as well as what we think of as states, includes indigenous peoples in many parts of the world, 
though not in most of Australia, for instance. So to think about systems of sovereignty and their interactions is to think about the international, but it's only contingently, as Chris points out, to think about states within that. And thinking about this in historical terms, I think, is to bring us back to the title of this panel this evening, which is The Past and Future of International Thinking. Uh, I think if we take the history seriously, and as presentist historians, taking history seriously to help us to understand the present in order to chart very various paths towards the future, uh, the way to think about the future of international thinking is precisely to go back to its past. And that is the job of historians and uh, of fellow scholars who uh, uh, engage in this collaborative enterprise of taking uh, a critical view of the current uh, international system, however we may define that, to put that into historical context, to look for analogies and also disanalogies. But the tools of history, I think, are going to be enormously important in pointing the way towards the future. Thank you. I love how now we have these two metaphors, the Hall of Mirrors and the Disco Ball. But just to, just to follow up um, to, the, you know, to the question that uh, Chris posed, mm -hmm on the, uh, you know, the rules-based order. And really, kind of, I guess less what is it than what is the kind of idea behind it, if mm -hmm. you like. And to ask you to talk a little bit about um, the Alexandrovich volume that um, Anne mentioned, because it seems to me that a lot of the discussion we have ends up kind of mystifying a little bit the kind of geographical or geopolitics involved mm -hmm. in, the, in this kind of assertion of a rules-based order. And... The, um, you know, in, who's, you know, in the interest of which parts of the world, if you like. Mm -hmm. And vo the volume that you put um, together on this legal thinker, mm -hmm. Alexandrovich, was precisely about showing that there's a history of international legal thought mm -hmm. that pays attention to how this rules-based order might be seen from a perspective other than that of empires, for example. Do you want to mention some of that? Without getting into too much detail yeah. about Alexander Ovitzen, a thinker from Central Europe who ended up in Madras in the 1950s and from there began to elaborate really a theory, a theory of overlapping and successive world orders from the early modern period through the period of his own time, which could allow him to construct one of the very first narratives of global history constructed by any historian in the 50s and 60s, but around the succession of different international legal orders. Um, imperial and post-imperial, uh, mid-imperial in, in the early modern and, and through to the 19th century, uh, and to rethink uh, world order through empire using history as a critical tool for his own present in the era of decolonization. Uh, and I think that uh, one of the important lessons from that that he put forward, and we use this actually as the epigraph of the book, is the past can teach us things which the present cannot uh, but to look back to the origins of our own discontents or our own conceptions of rules-based orders, which may themselves contain within them um, not just uh, the, the traces of earlier orders. So I, th I think it's actually a myth for us to say, um, I mean, I agree absolutely with Chris that the, the, the state-based order is very recent, 50, 60 years at most, but we shouldn't only think of that as the successor to an, an empire-based order. Empire is with us all over uh, when, when you make a, a welcome to country here, that's a recognition of the continuing theft of land through colonial dispossession. Empire is everywhere around us. Imperial orders are everywhere around us. These, these are interlocking uh, and not successive, but interacting orders still in the present. One does not replace the other. Uh, each is interwoven with the other. So a rules-based order uh, can benefit one set of actors, but then it becomes a, 
unruly, disruptive order for others. So we should not be surprised about the moving tectonic plates which is happening before our very eyes at the moment. This is not the result of the Brexit vote and the, and the 2016 election in the US. One can take this back all the way through, at least to 1945 and probably earlier. Uh, the, um, uh, the orange man and the Brexiteers are symptoms, but they're not causes of what's going on at the moment, and they, they sharpen our attention to that. But as historians, we have to say, well, what, what angle of vision? Is it 50 years? Is it 150 years? Is it 500 years to understand our current crisis? We don't know yet. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Glenda, for inviting me onto the panel and to all of you for coming. It's really, it's lovely to be here. Um, it's really an enormous honour as well to, to be on this panel with each of these great scholars, all of whom have, um, have influenced my work. Um, we've been given a really wide brief to speak about what our discipline might tell us about the international present, the relevance of international thinking today um, in the context of the rise of nationalism and the apparent decline of international collaboration and institutions. As Glenda noted, I'm a scholar of international relations based in Sussex, England, Brexitlandia. In, in Europe, uh, so depressing, in Europe um, as in Australia, I think IR is an incredibly uh, diverse interdiscipline. Its practitioners seek to understand the meaning of one magnificent and irreducible fact. This is the fact of worldwide political plurality, that there is not one, but many and many different kinds of polities existing and interacting in this world. This particular lexicon, this framing of the distinct historical subject of international relations, is adapted from mid-20th century political theorist Hannah Arendt. To inhabit the world, she insisted, is necessarily a form of cohabitation. Different polities in, uh, exist in their unique distinctness uh, between and among plural others. They are not simply multiple, endlessly reproducible repetitions of themselves. So all of humanity is both separated and related at the same time by the existence of multiple plural territorial entities. So at its best, IR is an interdiscipline because we need multiple methods of inquiry to understand plurality on a worldwide scale. It requires a deep, deep understanding of the politics and form of international law. It requires historians a, a, a close attention to temporality and scale. It raises ethical, theoretical, even philosophical questions about the nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. And we must attend to the history and mechanisms of capital accumulation and its transnational class relations, which are always gendered and race relations. We need international thinking because worldwide political plurality reaches into the core of our being. As Ken Booth has written, we are children of international relations. Before any of us become students, teachers and researchers, the scaffolding of our being has been constructed by international history. This includes our chances of surviving birth, our first language, the culture in which we are socialized, the nation into which we are politicized, our economic prospects and musical tastes and much more. The scaffolding may be rearranged, but never dismantled. So at, the, at the, uh, a time when universities as a public good are under assault, when we're told that people have had enough of experts, we should take some solace from the fact that the status of international thinking, in the academy at least, may never have been stronger. And I think surely some of the credit for this must go to Glenda and her very many collaborators at the Laureate Research Programme. Truth be told, my own discipline of IR, present company exclu uh, excluded, cannot take much credit for the strength of international thinking today. 
In the United States, IR's practitioners never succeeded in their goal of developing a convincing structural theory of international relations. America's foreign policy consensus, within which most IR scholarship worked, has collapsed. In particular, many liberal internationalists have experienced Brexit and Trump in near calamitous terms. In Britain, IR's early advocates broke away from old-school diplomatic history in the 1970s. It went on to largely organize itself around an ideological and intellectually debilitating set of isms and schools. I've recently had cause to look back at this break. One of the most disparaged diplomatic historians was Agnes Hedlund Morley, who was the first woman to become a full professor at the University of Oxford. She held the Montague Burton Chair in International Relations between 1948 and 1971. An historian of Anglo-German relations and a one-time uh, would-be Tory MP at Oxford, she was a famed salon hostess and college woman. The consensus among chroniclers of IR's history is that she failed to develop the subject because she viewed IR as a branch of history. As Ian Hall has put it, she was a staunch opponent of the study of contemporary international relations, let alone the, the use of newfangled social scientific methods. Moreover, as Martin Kiedel has written, Agnes's intellectual interests were inherited from her father, James, an historian and senior civil servant who helped draft the Treaty of Versailles. On this account, IR only, IR's fortunes only revived after Agnes's retirement in 1971 and the return to Oxford of Sydney graduate Hedley Bull. For others, the stakes were even higher than the fate and methods of a fledgling discipline. Agnes Hedlund Morley appears on the very last page of Carol Quigley's infamous book, The Anglo-American Establishment, on the Anglophone network seeking to establish global racial supremacy through imperial federation. Quote, the great idealistic venture, which, adventure which began with Toynbee and Milner in 1875 had slowly ground its way to a finish of bitterness and ashes when this, quote, middle-aged spinster sat in the Oxford chair. I've dwelled on this treatment of Agnes Hedlund Morley, not to endorse her brand of international thinking, which was really a great man, great power kind of history, nor because those dreams of imperial federation have been revived in Brexitlandia with talk of global Britain and the Anglosphere. And it's only partly to point to the gendered and constitutive marginalization of diplomatic history in the process of making disciplinary IR, but it's really to note a great irony. The most significant international thinking in the Anglophone Academy is by the heirs to Agnes Hedlund Morley, practitioners of the new international history. It is not by the successors to, the, the successors to Hedley Ball, the adherents of IR theories or schools, and those, by those who became obsessed with developing a new theoretic framework for a separate discipline. The new international history is thriving and its practitioners are more than comfortable with all the thematic, conceptual and theoretical moves that IR scholars import. This achievement is no mean feat, as everywhere we turn the humanities are said to be in crisis with shrinking budgets and declining student numbers. If there ever was a time that scholars could point to the outmoded character of diplomatic history as the raison d'etre for a separate IR discipline, that time has long passed. So far, so flattering to my hosts. Let me end with uh, a cautionary note, and it relates to the second part of Glenda's brief for us, the relevance of international thinking at a time when liberalism, democracy, and international law and institutions appear to be under threat, and fascism is again on the rise. International thinking is politically indispensable today. Uh, the orange asteroid seeks to make white America great again, and in, the, uh, in common with Trump and Putin, Brexiteers see the European Union as a foe to be vilified and destroyed. 
Perhaps then it is our responsibility on this panel to deliver, as historian Isabel Hull recently put it, quote, a timely and necessary plea for international law and for the value of institutions from which we have all benefited, but which we have in recent decades neglected to explain or defend. The unavoidable conclusion, Hull writes, is that we must stop lamenting and get up and do something. But in this moment of existential crisis for liberal internationalism and of liberal reaction, we have to be cautious, especially in, I think, in our more public-facing engagements. It would be quite easy to inadvertently circle the wagons around liberal internationalism. I'm thinking of John Eikenbury's efforts to, quote, reclaim the master narrative of the last 70 years with its so-called world historical advances. We might also think of Hathaway and Shapiro's juxtaposition of an old and new world order, celebrating advances in the laws of war, but completely ignoring the lethal hierarchies of global capitalism. The implication is that Brexit and Trump are the causes rather than the symptoms of the crisis of neoliberal international order. And here I completely agree with, with David on this. We cannot let the international institutions that Trump despises also to become totems. Instead, I think we need a kind of international thinking that both responds to the crisis, but which does not fetishize the post-World War II international organizations that have led to a world in which eight men, eight men own as, uh, the same amount of wealth as half of, the, as half of the rest of the world's population. And here, of course, the new international historians may offer some guidance. Indeed, they already have. I'm thinking of recent work on the racially diverse women and men who both built and resisted the institutions of contemporary global governance those who participated in anti-imperial struggles in and through international conferences and institutions, and those who fought them on the outside. For example, you know, some of the, essay, the essays in Glenda, Glenda's and Patricia Clavin's Internationalisms of 20th Century History, Keisha Blaine's Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle for Freedom, and Imabong Umaren's Race Women Internationalists. To practice international thinking is to seek to understand the magnificent and irreducible fact of worldwide political plurality. To practice international thinking does not tell us how to act in the world, nor should it begin with grand theories of the so-called international system. Instead, it might yield examples of past, radical, even revolutionary alternatives to both current liberal and re-emerging fascist internationalisms. And in my own field, I, um, so too is it urgent to recover and analyze the international thought of those constitutively marginalized in the process of making disciplinary IR. What should be, but is not yet, or even very close to, being the academic home of the best international thinking. Thank you very much. I'm just going to ask you where you think um, the national and the nation fit in this international thinking um, because I think your point's well taken that, you know, we don't want to, it's, it's not an either-or kind of positioning, right, that the international, there's some kind of international thinking that is the antithesis of anything bad that's going on. And in fact, if it's connected to, you know, this notion of a rules-based order, there are all sorts of, you know, historically, the thing you learn is how imperfect that order is or the kind of, the, the vested interests that might be, um, uh, part of that order. So, you know, do we need to think about, you know, given that nationalism is also one of the concerns of um, the present, you know, where do we put the, na the nation and the, or do we go to sleep? Yeah. Um, so, I, mean, I think that the, yeah, keep moving around. the rise of nationalism <laughs> 
I think can be understood as a crisis of democratic legitimacy of neoliberal international order, right? So it is the case that um, the liberal international, US-led liberal international order, the social contract between working classes within the US and those who are, have sought to orchestrate a global liberal, US-led liberal order, that, that contract is broken down because it is the case that certain EU trade practices have hurt American workers. Mm. It is the case that um, uh, Britain's involvement in various international trading agreements have, you know, has hurt uh, working classes within, within Britain. And so that then becomes um, the context in which people would support Trump. Um, so I think the, the, the response, the, 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 so, you know, that has led to a sort of crisis of liberal, liberalism and a kind of liberal reaction, which is to say, well, look, oh no, suddenly the white working classes now need to, need to pay attention to them. Let's redistribute a little bit of the wealth. You know, the 1% has kind of, you know, monopolized the benefits of neoliberal globalization. And this has caused, a, you know, the upsurge of nationalism. Of course, people are gonna turn to the right and um, support fascist groups. I think that the, the the problem with that sort of narrative, that sort of reaction, is that it, it in no way, um, it's too domestic in terms of its analysis of what's wrong with neoliberal globalization. Because of course, if, we, if the Democrats and New Labour or the, the sort of centrist parties start to pay more attention to what would historically have been their base, that doesn't, that in, in, in no way um, points to the, what are basically the kind of imperial white supremacist, um, uh, um, elitist dimensions of liberal internationalism, which produces you know, much more extreme inequality in the global scale. So the solution is not just to, we need a much more, we need a sort of a more radical left that is both not, that is able to, in response to the, that kind of crisis of domestic, domestic politics that has manifested itself in terms of support for more nationalistic parties, is to be able to balance both um, a concern for <coughs> workers, the marginalized within a domestic political context, but which does not reproduce uh, global inequalities, right? So the solution is, is not to continue to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, because that is what the unions support back home, but to both be able to tend to domestic inequalities without reproducing global inequalities. And I think that that national, international nexus is, is at the heart of the crisis of the, of the liberal internationalism today. You can't forget about it. Okay, I think you've all been very patient. And um, please ask your questions. Does anyone have anything they'd like to ask? Yeah, I was struck by how uh, the title of this, you know, is, is not just the history, but also the future of international thinking. Um, but there are only a few moments in which the speakers addressed you know, the future. Um, and I was, uh, you know, taken when uh, Ann Orford uh, quoted uh, Jameson on how it seems to be easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism or the state system. Um, and I think a lot of us feel that way now. And when um, you know, David Armitage and, and Patricia Owens referred to Trump as the orange asteroid, I felt that you know, we're, we're acknowledging how it is that Trump seemed to come out of nowhere, right? Like this planetary threat that we still can't quite explain. And don't you think that's part of the reason why it is that there is this um, uh, crisis in confidence um, 
of the ability of elites to, um, to lead because it seems as if they've lost, not just you, but collectively lost the ability to speak authoritatively about the future. Um, and so, you know, there's a whole series now of uh, crises and cataclysmic events like 9-11, financial crisis, Brexit, you know, Trump's election and so on that seem like black swan events, right? So that it seems as if the future has become completely unpredictable. Um, so I'm just wondering if, you know, our now <laughs> continuing inability, you know, to speak authoritatively about the future is part of the reason for why it is we got where we are today, um, which is lost. Interesting. Does anyone want to take that up? Chris? So I, and a, that's a great question. I think there are any number of answers to it, and I'll only answer it with respect to my own field, international relations. I think the problem is with our inability to speak to the future has deeply ingrained disciplinary foundations, and it's not just the context. So, for example, one of the reasons why our field has little practical relevance in the sense that it contributes little to any kind of public debates is because some time ago we hived off the kind of positive study of international relations from normative inquiry about international relations and we created two separate fields. But if you ask the question, how should we act in this global context, which is really in a sense that question of what do political elites do? Where do they go? Do they have a vision for it? You can't answer that through a simple diagnosis of how the world is. You actually have to have a set of normative principles and ways of thinking and reasoning that you can bring into dialogue with those things. And that's fundamentally what international relations hived off and separated. And I think I've long been arguing that actually counterintuitively, given the sort of, you know, there's a big debate in my field about how we have to become more practically relevant, policy relevant. But actually, the only way we can do that is if we actually break down some of the intellectual barriers to enable us to actually talk normatively about the world in which we exist now. You're someone who's worked on the history of future thinking, right? Um, and I think that uh, those of us who are interested in sort of the, the loser strands of the past are kind of recuperating failed visions of the future are participating in, in a way in the kind of project that you're talking about. I mean, you know, Patricia, some of your people that you were talking about um, and that Keisha Blaine is sort of writing about and, and that you're writing about, I mean, that's, that is a way, isn't it, of kind of talking about the future without sort of investing in a particular path, but talking about, like, trying, if, if, when I know, when I'm looking at the past, I'm interested in the spectrum of thinking. So not just the most, you know, the, the position that wins out, for example, but the different versions of um, what, what an international organisation should look like, you know, in 1919 or 1945. And understanding just how broad the thinking about what the future might be was. And that's one way, I think, of shifting the debate now without, you know, openly laying your cards on the table with a specific vision of the future, but saying that there is a broader, you know, there was and could be a broader spectrum of thinking about the nature of the state or the nature of um, the nation even, of what a nation is, what the role of a nation is vis-a-vis -vis, um, international organisations. So 
you know, I, is that one kind of contribution you can make without saying this is what the, you know, planning for the future or is it saying this is what the future should be like? So, um, I think that uh, international law um, in some ways doesn't seek to predict the future, which I think was more classically what we handed over to economists who then handed it off because they stopped caring about doing that to a degree and said, well, we're trying to think about risk and, um, and game how we think about what might unfold. And it seems to me that international law has not only taken that up, uh, so I'm finishing, after the book I'm finishing, I'm finishing another book on international law and economic ordering that tries to say that economic thinking has much more profoundly invaded international law than we really realise. So in a sense, what we, his, what we talk about when we talk about the history of international law is a history of something that, that is over. And international law is now something else. It's stepped into risk in a much more radical way. And it's that engagement with um, the future as a stepping into risk that I think international law has really taken up. And to a degree, I don't think the elites that worry me think that's a problem at all because they're not answering to the people who will bear that risk. They're answering to the people who will profit from that risk, I think. Do you want to say something? And it's, it's not just that historians have, as it were, forgotten about the history of the future. Uh, we've deliberately repressed any interest in that. Uh, I've written about this elsewhere, that classical conceptions of history in the West and elsewhere until about 100 years ago uh, determined that the reconstruction of the past was necessary in the present in order to orient citizens, rulers, advisors, and others towards the future. And increasingly, as history became professionalized, our sole responsibility came, became uh, to focus on the reconstruction of the past in its pastness, in its difference, in its strangeness, in its otherness, with presentism as one of the greatest sins in the future, as, to quote one re recent historian who, who was asked to talk about the implications of something in the present, he said, the future is not my period. That would be another motto for the historical profession. <laughs> uh, but that, that's, that's, as it were, selling the past about what historians have traditionally done from Herodotus up to, to Ranka, which is to orient towards the future. And one way we can do that is to put con uh, the black swan events into context. I mean, a great example, I haven't read it yet because it just came out two days ago, is your colleague Adam Tuzi's book, Crashed, 800 pages. Uh, on the, the 2008 crash, making sense of that in all of its dimensions. That's a kind of hot take for historians. It's only taken 10 years to produce an 800-page book on that. Mm. But that's going to help us to orient ourselves towards explaining the next such, or preventing even, at least orienting ourselves towards the possibilities of imagining this as not something that comes out of nowhere. And as we line up those events you talk about, it turns out 9-11 was not tremendously important in the end. 2008 was much more important in terms of where we are now. 9-11 uh, was not the cataclysmic event we thought it was, uh, except for the generation of Islamophobia and the extension of the forever war, and so on. It had its consequences, but they're, they're not the consequence of the act itself. It's reactions to that act. But 2008 is the larger context of where we are now. I also think we, we for instance, miss the significance of Milosevic. I think we want to trace a genealogy of Trump. Milosevic is a really great place to start, and not just because of the hair. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I could elaborate that in a, in a different context. But there are other pathways to the present which can help us think a little beyond the present into branching futures uh, in that direction, multiple futures, just as we have multiple pasts.
Um, so, um, I was thinking about thinking more than international, because I'm still not pretty unclear about international, I guess. Um, but that, that thinking happens in a place and in a body. Um, and so, I guess I'm wondering for you guys, because I'm, I still am kind of struggling with the abstracted nature of the international and internet, what international history is or might be, um, whether you could reflect on the actual kind of specific textures and examples or cases that it is that you're transacting when you're talking about the international. Because I suppose the, the other sort of thing that struck me when David Armitage was talking about presentism is that historians don't often take localism maybe as seriously as they could and should. Um, and that it's often within very local sites that particular and particularly interesting politics around, say, treaties, which um, I'm interested in in the indigenous context, um, are generated. Um, and uh, whether or not that constitutes a real international or, a, or an unreal international, I don't know. But I wondered if you might um, be prepared to reflect on that a bit. I, I think of it another way that, um, I mean, we can all label our work in different ways, but, you know, the first... My PhD was on a place called Trieste, right, so very local, and it was about um, how one understood the, um, the interpretation, like the dominant interpretation of what had happened at Trieste and why it was a problem and how problem with the, the border between Italy, Italy and Yugoslavia and what that told us about ideas about sovereignty and difference in identity in the 20th century. So the point was you couldn't understand that local place without understanding the role that both national policies and international policies had played because um, you know, during the two world wars there had been various forms of occupation, allied occupation and um, you know, imposition of, of governance and ways of behaving and uses of identity politics uh, that reinforced nationalist politics on the ground. So trying to, un you know, at the time the only metaphor I could think of was onions, <laughs> peeling the onion, but um, but trying to understand the local was inevitably, in that context, international. Now, you might want to say that, but you're even saying it yourself, that local treaties have this kind of international context. Now, you could write it as a national or a local history, or, but, you know, in my case, no one actually offered the framing of international history. It was something that I decided later that I was doing because it wasn't national history. And it didn't fit any of those categories. And I wanted to think about the layers of, um, of politics and how they fitted together historically. So it, it can be a choice you make, I think, you know, that you call it international history. But I think the important thing is to remember, you know, in terms of the dominance of nationalist historiographies and what we were calling today methodological nationalism, that my argument would be that all national histories are international in some way. And if we go back to, you know, Bentham's kind of idea of what the international is. And, and David's uh, book on the global history of the Declaration of Independence, I think, makes this point really well. That these, these national stories are constructed completely in terms of relations between nations. And you understand the Declaration of Independence, it's shifting in you know, um, significance if you understand that it starts out as a way of telling a story to other nations and other, other sovereigns and other sovereignties, and only later becomes a nationalist story in, in the way David told that, has told that history. So, but you could still be a national historian and make that point, but I make it as an international historian. 
So, um, in terms of international law, it, it's, it's so vast an object, even if I wanted to tell you what international law happened today and where, let alone kind of across history, that every time someone tries to tell a story about it, they're making a choice as to what they want to try and make visible. But with that choice in mind, um, one example that I wanted to mention, because it's kind of in conversation with the Brexit story, um, is a kind of brilliant piece that Philip Allett published. So he is a former Foreign Office lawyer, now a retired professor at Cambridge, who um, wrote a piece recently about being the Foreign Office lawyer who had the responsibility between 1971 and 1973 for negotiating British accession to the EC, as it then was. And he says, um, it's just a, such a great and weird piece. Um, in light of also the way in which there's this en enormous mourning for what's past, as he talks about the revolution that had to take place, and he says it's a grey on grey revolution, it's a bureaucratic revolution, but what had to be remade in order to join this country up to this transnational world, and what that meant for how so much that we would think of as central to democratic decision-making is handed into this void. And then you would go over to Brussels and he said it was this deafening silence. There's no politics. There's, and so everything's been handed into this space and he just describes it as silent. There's, and it's just a kind of government in people's minds. And then they would send stuff back out into silence and, and because there was so much going on. And now it's being reverse engineered. We keep being told how much work has to do to undo it. But that work happens every time one of these mega treaties is signed onto. The same work's happening. And no, you know, no one talks about it because that, that's when people want us to sign on. So um, that's a really nice example. So when Isabel Hull, this, this comment, this is the, the slightly dangerous thing I think when when you get a kind of um, historical piece that presents what, what international law is. It's so um, nostalgic about international law and why we should defend it. So that little piece in her review of Susan Peterson's, no, of the Hathaway and Shapiro book, is now being quoted by lawyers who make enormous amounts of money from arbitration to say, our generation created a world where things can be adjudicated. That is, investment treaties can be adjudicated and we should all be defending it. And I'm not going to go to the barricades for investment arbitration, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, but, so this is, I think, when I say that history gets caught up in the story, I see it happen all the time. Historians write something, not historians here, but write something, you know, that says we should all be defending international law, but the vision of international law has got, has got very little to do with what international law is now, and then, you know, it gets into this echo chamber. In terms of the, the texture of the international, I think, I think that Chris is right. I mean, that's not the forte of IR, but where I think that where the overlap and the interdisciplinary connection with, inter, with, with history works and where the, to the benefit of, of, of IR is, is on the international intellectual history and disciplinary history where the best work that's done within IR that's historical, that's contextual is I think in, in sort of that domain and I would point and you know, we were asked to give an example and I, you know, I would point to Robert Vitalis's book White World Order Black Power, Black Power Politics which is I think you know one of the best books in the field in the last 10 years which is uh, you know very close 
um, detailed account of, of, of uh, how the subject of international relations was produced in a particular way to move it away from what it had been, which was race relations, to this new world order which, which would sort of black box questions of race and would, would maintain this fiction of international relations being about understanding relations between sovereign territorial states. And you know, this has you know, been intellectually debilitating for the subject um, of, 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 of IR, but this kind of historical account of the origins of the discipline in the US kind of shows exactly the erasures that make that possible in, in, quite, good, in quite sophisticated details. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.